Jenna, thank you very much, and uh, it's great to see everyone here. Thank you for inviting me to, uh, to talk to you at the end of your lunch. Um, so what I want to talk about today is President Obama's war powers legacy. So it seems like this is maybe a good time to step back and think about this, both because it is uh, at the end of his administration, obviously, no checking your phones while I'm talking, and, uh, and he is a president who has been um, overseeing armed conflicts the entire time that he has been in office, so for all eight years, um, conflicts in Afghanistan and in Iraq, conflicts against al-Qaeda and, and ISIS, um, and some activities in other countries as well. So I think there are a number of angles that one could take in thinking about the president's uh, war powers legacy. So one would be a constitutional law approach where um, you might explore President Obama's resorts to force and his relationship with Congress. So how often has he turned to Congress to get permission to use force? How much has he been willing to um, interpret statutes broadly? How much has he relied on his Article II powers? So I think that's one, one way that one could think about his, um, his legacy. There's another way to think about it as well, which is um, how did his policies compare and contrast with President Bush's policies? Um, and especially in the early days of uh, the first Obama administration, there was a lot of writing trying to think about whether he had made uh, more changes than we might have expected or fewer changes than we might have expected to the war powers legacy that President Bush had set out, uh, especially post the 9-11 attacks. Um, I'm more interested in, in a third approach. Here I want to think about President Obama's approach to international law. Um, and in particular, the international legal rules that um, regulate a state's resort to force inside another country, sometimes called the use ad bellum, um, and the way in which uh, the, the US government has conducted its conflicts under international law. It's a body of law referred to as the use in bello, or the laws of war. And I want to think a little bit about how his approach interlocks with the Bush administration's approach. So the first argument I want to present today is that I think President Obama did something quite strategic in his, in his approach to these two bodies of international law, um, at least in a number of cases. I won't make a claim that he's done it in, in every case, but in a number of cases. He's been able to respond to our allies' concerns about what they saw as President Bush's overreach by adopting more modest policies. But at the same time, I think he rarely has renounced President Bush's broader legal claims, um, leaving them as relatively functional, relatively strong legal precedent in the event that he decided that he needed them. So I think he has imposed on, on himself and on the executive branch um, some constraints, uh, especially sort of it appears as though he has imposed constraints. But I don't know that he's made a lot of, of real legal sacrifice uh, in this area. And so I, what I want to, I refer to this as executive minimalism. Uh, and my second argument is that notwithstanding the apparent benefits of what President Obama has done in using this minimalist approach uh, with regard to these bodies of international law, I do think the approach has some costs for the US. So what I want to do is give a quick review of some of the Bush administration's more maximalist legal policies, say a little bit more about what I mean by executive minimalism when I use that phrase, um, offer a couple of examples of minimalism that I think President Obama has used, um, and then say a little bit about both the benefits and the costs to this kind of approach. 
So, um, so I think it's fair to describe a, uh, some of what uh, President Bush did and maybe a lot of what he did as uh, sort of legal maximalism. So in the wake of uh, the September 11th attacks, the Bush administration staked out some quite broad substantive claims about what international law permitted, both with regard to the use ad bellum, the resort to force, um, and with regard to the detention and interrogation of members of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And he also asserted those legal claims publicly and frequently, uh, I think quite clearly, uh, described what he thought the legal um, scope of his uh, permissible activities were. And those views were often in tension with received understandings of international law, um, or at least they reflected maximalist views about what the relevant treaties and customary rules allowed um, in this area. So just to give you a couple of examples, um, he invoked this idea of preemptive self-defense. Um, some of you may have followed this issue. This is this idea that that a state has a right to use force preemptively, even if there's uncertainty about the time and place of an attack that you think might be happening. And that stretched further the traditional understanding of when it's appropriate to use force in self-defense. He also um, famously denied prisoner of war status to the Taliban, which was another um, issue that was um, quite controversial on the international plane. He took broad views about what kinds of enhanced interrogation techniques were permissible um, under uh, international law, either under the arm, uh, law of armed conflict or the Convention Against Torture. But there's a little bit of irony here, which is that the Bush administration, in some cases, didn't actually take actions that pushed up all the way to the boundaries of the, the legal claims that he had made. Um, and yet, he asserted these very broad uh, legal positions. Okay. Um, now I want to say a little bit about what I mean by executive minimalism. So um, the way I think about this, it's a variation on um, ideas that Alexander Bickel and Cass Sunstein have put forward. Um, Alexander Bickel um, famously advocated for the use of passive virtues in judicial decision making. And what he had in mind there is that courts should try to avoid deciding very divisive questions by using tools such as um, standing or ripeness or the political question doctrine. Um, and Cass Sunstein built on this idea um, with something he calls judicial minimalism. And the idea here is that when courts do take up difficult and controversial questions, um, they should try to issue modest and narrow decisions to try to attract consensus, especially among um, sort of multi-judge panels, rather than articulating these bold and high-profile constitutional visions of what the law should be. So in um, Professor Sunstein's view, leaving things undecided is a virtue. So here I come back to the first argument that I want to make, which is that President Obama's executive branch took an approach to international law that bears some resemblance to these concepts of judicial minimalism. So therefore, I refer to it as executive minimalism. <clears throat> So I think what, he, uh, what, I, what I mean by this is I think um, President Obama s tried to signal to other states a US interest in self-constraint, not deciding more than is necessary, and trying to avoid some of these very difficult um, international law questions that arise um, when you're fighting this new kind of terrorist actor. So I think he made fewer bold, substantive, and rhetorical claims than President Bush in the areas of the use ad bellum and use in bellum. 
And one way he did this was by establishing policies that authorized a narrower scope of action than what we might think international law actually would permit. And I think he also did this partly by being somewhat hesitant to assert bold, clear legal claims about what international law allows or where international law's outer limits lie. So I think it's useful to give you a couple of examples that I think represent um, executive minimalism under the Obama administration. So the first example I want to give is uh, targeted killing. In 2013, the president announces a policy regarding forcible counterterrorism actions that take place outside of what he calls hot battlefields. So in other words, these are targeted killings that are taking place away from places like Afghanistan and Iraq, but occurring, for example, in Yemen or Somalia, um, places like that. And the policy is quite clear. It says the US government is deciding to target really only a subcategory of people that it thinks it could legally target. So the policy says that, for example, the US will only use lethal force against a target who poses a continuing and imminent threat to US persons. It also says that before conducting a strike, the US has to have, quote, near certainty, unquote, that the target is present and that non-combatants will not be injured or killed. That is, your, your innocent civilians are not going to be uh, harmed by the strike. It also expresses a preference for capturing an individual, where feasible, rather than killing them. And each of those requirements that I just listed exceeds what the laws of armed conflict require of a state uh, when it is uh, fighting an armed conflict. So in short, I think the targeted killing policy reflects a decision to pursue a substantive scope of action that is narrower than what international law arguably allows, but without offering or proffering clear details about what those wider boundaries and limits um, would allow. And one reason that we know that the policy uh, is narrower than the, the full scope of what the US government thinks the law allows is that there is an exception built into the policy that says that uh, this does not prohibit the president in exceptional circumstances from authorizing strikes outside this policy as long as they are lawful. So it, it recognizes there's a delta between the policy and the law. A second example that I'll mention is uh, about covert action, right? This is activities taken by our intelligence communities to try to influence the political, military, or economic um, behavior of other countries where the hand of the US government is not intended to be revealed. The Obama administration has been forced to talk more publicly, I think, than almost any other administration uh, we can find in history about the relationship between intelligence activities and international law. Why? Well, because a lot of the covert actions that have taken place in the past 15 years have ended up coming to light. So um, targeted killing has been taken sometimes as a covert action, uh, rendition, for example, um, and various kinds of surveillance. So where the uh, Obama administration has discussed this relationship between uh, intelligence and international law, the administration has expressed a policy preference for having the intelligence community comply to the extent it can with international law. And yet, one will search in vain for a clear US government statement that announces with any kind of precision which rules of international law do and do not regulate our intelligence community. So let me give you a good quote. This is by um, Caroline Crass, who is now the CIA's general counsel, was asked a question about this in her nomination hearing. 
Um, and, and the answer she provided was undoubtedly reviewed and cleared by the US government. And she said, as a general matter, and including with respect to the use of force, the United States respects international law and complies with it to the extent possible in the execution of covert action activities. So I described this elsewhere as a precisely imprecise statement, right? Um, the policy allows the US government to avoid stating definitively which uh, aspects, which international laws apply to these intelligence activities, but at the same time trying to um, assuage concerns from other actors, including our allies in Europe, that the US intelligence activity is totally unregulated, right? Wants to avoid that perception. So I offer these examples to try to illustrate that I think the Bush administration and Obama administration often viewed international law quite uh, differently from each other. But it's important to note that Obama was only able to undertake this minimalist approach because he was operating against a more maximalist backdrop, right? The Bush administration's approach facilitated the Obama administration's approach. Because President Obama didn't have to plow new legal ground in asserting things like the conflict with Al-Qaeda is a global conflict, um, various other legal propositions that underpin our conflict with Al-Qaeda today had been basically set out, worked out by the Bush administration. So as a result, I think the Obama administration earns credit from its international partners by crafting these narrower policies in certain areas, but has been able to hold in reserve these broader Bush administration legal interpretations in the event that operational requirements are such that the Obama administration needs to go a little bit further uh, than the policies that it had carved out for itself. Okay, so let me say a little bit about the benefits and costs, I think, uh, that, I, that I see in taking an, uh, a, an executive minimalist approach to international law and international law discourse. In terms of benefits, I think the most obvious benefit is that the Obama administration was able to re-engage allies that some of whom had become alienated under the Bush administration because the approach invites discussion about what the actual content of international law is. Right? It avoids a suggestion that a single state can determine the meaning of international law, which is sometimes the impression that the Bush administration gave. I think it also has allowed the Obama administration to attract broader international consensus around a narrower position, right? That narrower policy, those narrower policies that they've set forth. And at the same time, the Obama administration is producing what we call state practice when we're thinking about whether a particular rule has become custom such that it applies as a matter of international law to everybody, we look at what the state practice has been. So the Obama administration still is producing state practice when it is pursuing policy X. It's just not telling us whether it thinks X plus one would also be lawful. The approach has left more decision-making space for future administrations. So if you take a, a policy approach and don't say much about what you think the legal parameters are, uh, the next administration can move closer towards th those outer limits, might pull back even further from those limits, but it doesn't have to openly um, uh, renounce earlier administration legal positions. Um, and finally, I think the Obama minimalist approach reduces some internal decisional costs that can arise within uh, the executive branch when it's trying to decide what uh, the right policy or law is. So for example, if you have the State Department and the Defense Department disagreeing about whether it is permissible to target X group, well, if you adopt a policy 
that is uh, relatively narrow, you are likely able to get both agencies on board rather than fight out that more difficult uh, legal issue to the death. Okay, but I think this is the second part of my argument is that there are some, I think, unforeseen or maybe under-considered costs to adopting this more minimalist approach. First, I think it slows the development of international law. So it obscures the value and weight to assign to a particular action by the United States. Uh, it, it makes it harder for other states to know uh, whether that is a, a sort of a legal position, a policy position. Um, what should we think about what the US government thinks about law? <clears throat> and you might think that the world's dominant military power, at least for now, should be more forthcoming about what its legal theories are and maybe have to defend those policies more openly with um, reason giving. There's also a, a, a skepticism, especially by um, foreign actors, when you tell them that you are doing something as a matter of policy. If you tell them you're doing something as a matter of law, they say, okay, good, we understand that. If you say we're doing it as a matter of policy, it's seen as more malleable. And maybe rightly so, because it's often easier to change a policy than it is to change a legal interpretation within the executive branch. But that's also it means that it's seen as less stable and uh, it makes it harder for allies to predict how the US government will act uh, in the, the next iteration of the problem. It also leaves undisturbed several controversial legal claims of the prior administration, right? If you're not really in the business of saying all that much about what you think the legal rules are, what the administration before you has said about them stays on the books. And I think maybe um, most problematically, the Obama administration approach was uh, created some ambiguity in terms of how other states interpreted what they saw us do. So let me give you an example. Uh, there was a situation in which the U.S. rendered an individual from, uh, from Libya to the United States. Uh, it's quite likely, although we don't know for sure, it's likely that the U.S. had the consent of Libya to do that. But because it couldn't say what its legal theory was, it might not have wanted to announce that it had Libya's consent. From the outside, if you're Russia, you might look at that and say, okay, so the United States thought that it was acceptable to go into another country grab an individual and bring him back to the United States for trial. So because uh, the government wasn't able to be clear about what the legal rationale was, it, it obfuscated what the, the policy precedent um, should be there. So in conclusion, let me just wrap up. I think the Obama administration uh, generally in the US government also reaped a variety of benefits in this more minimalist approach to international law in the war powers area. I think there is clearly less rancor and less legal conflict with allies in Europe now than there had been under the Bush administration uh, under both terms. But I think the US legal positions remain somewhat muddy on a variety of doctrines in this area. And I think there has been a reduced opportunity to shape international law doctrines related to force and we might worry about this a little bit as the long-standing rules in this area continue to come under challenge because of the new kinds of threats that we're facing today. So in short, I think all this means that Obama's war powers legacy may ultimately be a little bit more modest than he might have hoped. 
Um, so with that, I'll, I'll wrap up and see if anybody has questions. Anyone? Yes, question. I think I would, I would parse the answer depending on the kind of technology that we're talking about. So um, the Bush administration also had drones in, its, in the Department of Defense and CIA um, uh, arsenal, I guess we should say. Um, but I think that by and large, the issues that are thought to be associated with drones are actually issues associated with the, f the fact and policy of targeted killing. Um, so I think in many ways, drones are not that distinct from uh, missiles fired from ships a long distance uh, that are pretty precise and, um, and, and go where they land. It's a question about ch who you are choosing to kill when you are engaged in a conflict that is happening not just on a traditional battlefield, but in various places around the world. So to that extent, I'm not sure, uh, the technology may mean the question about targeted killing comes up more, the more drones you have and the more capacity you have. Um, but to that extent, I'm not sure the technology is, is, um, is tripped up the Obama administration or made it more complicated. Where I think it has made it com more complicated is in the cyber area. So this is a place where uh, the Obama administration has confronted without a doubt more than the Bush administration, challenges about cyber attacks. Um, as as, I, as you, your question suggests, the technology is increasing exponentially, and the kinds of attacks that both states and non-state actors are able to inflict on each other is growing by the minute. So this is an area where um, uh, the rules are still very much in flux. And the only thing that's, that, I don't even want to say all states, a number of states have agreed on, I guess I would put the US and Europe in this bucket, have agreed that there are some kinds of cyber attacks that can rise to the level of what's called an armed attack. Uh, so for example, if, um, if Russia attacked our, um, uh, our power system and it caused power in, the, uh, in many, many hospitals to fail, or if you attack the air traffic control system and a number of planes crashed, the kinds of damage produced by that cyber attack look like the kind of damage that you could find from a, a regular kinetic armed attack. So I think in that area, there's some agreement that how to deal as an international law question with cyber. But below that threshold, uh, is, it a, is it a violation of international law to attack uh, someone's stock exchange? Is it a violation to steal uh, the DNC's emails, a political party's emails, those kinds of things? are very much in flux. Uh, and um, I think states are realizing that the absence of law in this area uh, is potentially posing a serious problem, although I think it's not quite clear how to fix that. Yes, please. You had indicated that uh, some of our it's difficult to sort of predict our system. 
So I think it's, it's problematic when we're talking about our allies. I think I can understand that there may well be situations in which we don't want to telegraph our military strategies to our enemies and so on. But I think if, if, if we're thinking about NATO, for example, where uh, it's a 28-plus state alliance, and the other states around the table want to understand what we think the scope of uh, a particular activity, what, how much is legally permissible, what, how do we interpret a given set of the, the laws of war, I think it's important to be pretty clear about what our thoughts are so that we, our military activities with our allies uh, are not hindered by that, by that ambiguity and that lack of clarity. Anything else? Okay, thank you all very much. <laughs>